I can confess I approach this chapter with a little fear and trepidation. This is, this is the Son of God praying to God our Father. This is God praying to God, and here we are listening in. And who are we to listen in? When Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples weren't even listening in. That's because they fell asleep, right? Hopefully that won't be our problem this morning. This is not the Garden of the Gethsemane prayer, which, which helped me to sort of frame what's happening here, what's going on. Jesus has explained, and in fact, like many teachers or preachers, he actually buys a little more time. He's, he's running short of time there at the end of chapter 14, but he's got more to say. And so he says, arise, let us go from here, because Judas and, and the soldiers he's guiding are going to be coming. They're going to come back to that house because that's where Judas left Jesus. And so Jesus has them leave that house there on the western hill where the upper room was. He has them leave that house, and perhaps they go over the top of the western hill and down uh, through the gardens and vineyards on the other side, down around the back way to the Mount of Olives, not going to the Garden of Gethsemane right away because he's got two more chapters to say, chapter 15, chapter 16. But going down through that garden valley is a great place to start talking about, I am the vine, you are the branches. And then chapter 18 picks up with then they cross the Kidron Valley and they enter into the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where that garden prayer will occur, where he prays, not my will, but thy will be done. Actually, he prays that already here in chapter 17. But he expresses it in terms both for himself and for us. He expressed it in positive terms, positive terms about what the Father's will is rather than the resisting of it or the running away from it. And so in, in this chapter, in this prayer, we do, there's something to learn as well as something to just rest in and to hear and maybe to pray some in the same way that our Lord himself prayed in the midst of his circumstance and praying for those around him immediately and also praying for us who would come much later. You see, there's a time element involved as well. Jesus prays for the immediate. Jesus prays for this hour that has now come, the hour of his own laying down his life. Jesus prays for the next days and week or weeks when the disciples are going to be in despair. He says, the world is going to rejoice and you're going to despair. And then you will see me again. And you will rejoice with a great rejoicing. So the, it's going to be an emotional roller coaster in the next several days. And he prays for the disciples in that time as well as in their ministry which will follow from there. And then he looks even further ahead, and he looks down the corridor of time, looking into God's future, and he prays even for us. You and I are included in this prayer. He prays for those who would believe through the disciples' testimony. And anyone here who has believed in Jesus Christ, somehow that is connected to the testimony of these whom Jesus prays for here. Now, think of that this way. Look how far one man's prayer reached. You say, yeah, but that was Jesus. 
But his prayer is still having its impact over, well, about 2,000 years later. Praying of what God will do, looking into God's future to the culmination of his plan. I want us to, well, I'm, I want to go along the way and I want to, there's some things certainly that I want to share with you out of this prayer. But I want, to, I want us just to read it first. I want us to hear Jesus as he first prays for himself in this circumstance where Jesus is praying, Father, use my life to give your life. I want us to hear Jesus praying for his own when he prays, Father, keep us faithfully following you together in your word. I want us to hear him praying further into God's plan in history for those who would believe through his disciples and their testimony. Father, use your working in us to show others around us your glory. You see, we can take how he prays, and it ought to. We ought to learn something from it as well. We should simply rest in the reality that this is what he prayed for me. And yet we should also learn something from it that changes, maybe informs somehow the way that we would pray for our, our hour, our circumstances, our situations, how we would pray for the impact of what we do, how we would pray for how we follow, how we would pray for God's working through us. So with that in mind, thinking of those three, Jesus praying for himself, for his disciples, and also for us, the immediate hour, the circumstances coming ahead, and even into the future, let's read John 17. I invite you to follow along in an English Standard Version. If you didn't bring an English Standard Version Bible, there's probably one in there in the, in the, in the bench in front of you. And we'll be on, in that Bible, we'll be on page 903. But I'd like you to follow along just to something about seeing the words as you hear the words that, that it just sometimes they resonate a little bit more in our own hearts. John chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, the words of the previous chapters, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. 
And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love by which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. John, John's upper room discourse, beginning of chapter 13, after the, uh, the, the, the nation as a whole, Israel as a whole, has rejected their Messiah. He came to his own, chapter 1 said, but his own did not receive him. But as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. And that is this small circle. In fact, in Pentecost, there will be about 100, 120 gathered in the upper room. Not a lot of people. Not a great start after three years of his faithful ministry. And yet, in this upper room discourse, this is probably one of the most, most well-known and certainly the most significant of any of Jesus' messages, sermons, or discourses, or teachings, whatever we want to call it. And he concludes this discourse now with this prayer. He's been teaching and explaining, and he just pauses, and now he prays. And the, the realities of what he has been saying now flow out of his prayer. What he has said to them is what he desires for them. It's what the Father desires for them. Through his work, that they would continue his work, that, that God would keep them and continue them and give them the same kind of relational unity together with God and God the Father and the Son that Jesus has enjoyed with the Father by the Spirit, that they will step into that, live in that, that they will live in the will of the Father. They will live out the will of the Father just as Jesus has done. And in that way, in that unity together, not merely in and amongst themselves, but in that unity together in the Father and in His will and His purpose, who He truly is, in that shared unity, 
they will also reveal the Father and his salvation in and among the world, even as Jesus himself did. Those are the things he said in chapters 13 through 16, and it's what he prays for now here in chapter 17. Jesus does three things. I said he prays for himself and his work. He prays for his disciples and he prays for us. There's a time element that immediate this hour has come, the next days, the weeks and months, and long into God's program. So first of all, in praying that they would have life in his name, whatever that means, Jesus first prays for himself. And we could express that prayer. If we were to learn from that prayer, be informed by it ourselves so that we would say, well, something from this teaches me how to pray, our prayer might be, Father, use my life to give your life. Use my life, use my work, use what it is you set before me to do to give your life to others. And Jesus will do that first for us in a way that none of us ever have to follow. None of us can lay down our lives so that whoever believes in us can be saved. But many around the world, actually, Christians will lay down their life for the testimony of Jesus and life in his name. That continues. Father, use my life to give you life. And Jesus prays this way because Jesus is believing for himself. Now, we think of Jesus as he's the son of God. And so we sort of, we could easily be tempted to sort of write off what Jesus does as completely different from what we would do and how we would live. But Jesus is living the quintessential human life among us by the same spirit that also dwells within those who believe in Jesus. So this is not a stretch to say we can pray what he prays. Also, Father, use my life to give your life. He is believing everything he's been teaching his disciples. He's believing it for himself. Jesus calls us to believe what he believed about the Father. Jesus calls us to believe for ourselves in him what he believed about his position, his standing, his relationship with the Father. And that's demonstrated in what he asks right here. He believes in glory, that God is going to work his glory in the face of shame and rejection. Jesus believes that, that, that God is the one who is in authority, even though Jesus is about to be arrested. He believes in God's sovereignty over everything, even though Jesus himself is about to be submitted to Rome's aggression and, 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 and opposition. He believes in eternal life, with the Father, even though he's about to lay down his body in death. He believes in eternal glory that transforms these earthly realities from tragedy into triumph. The question for us is, do we believe what Jesus believed? Do we believe today what Jesus believes in this prayer? Do we believe that out of whatever present circumstances that God is working his glory, that even out of tragedy can come triumph, that even out of shame can come glory, that even out of the worst of circumstances, God can be working? Do you believe it? Because that's what Jesus believes here, and that's what changes how he prays. Maybe this morning you're feeling guilt, you're feeling shame, 
And that you can lay down before this table because, because Jesus poured out his life for the forgiveness of our, of our sin and for giving us his relationship with the Father, his life in our life. That there's nothing between, there's nothing that hinders, there's no shame that causes distance between us and God any longer. We are in a completely, rightly restored relationship with God. Do you believe that? Because you have these things echoing around in your head based on what you've done or what somebody else has said about who you are or who you aren't. When God says, you are mine. They are yours, Jesus says to the Father. And you gave them to me. You are the Father's and you belong to Jesus. You are that precious to him. That Jesus himself even says, I want them to be with me where I am. Have you ever thought about that? Really let that sink in that Jesus is praying. When he's got a little time to pray, and it's not a long prayer, one of the things he says is, I want Walt with me. So I want Julie and Julie with me. That I want those who have believed in me, I want them with me in my glory forever. That there, in a short amount of time, a relatively simple prayer, he remembered you and you with him. That's who you are. That's who you are in here. Not the shame that echoes around inside our head. Some of you are well advanced in years, as the Bible says. Some of you can sense that, you know, death is near. We have a family notice, a family news notice in the bulletin this morning that, that Wayne Hamilton has gone to be with his Savior. I was with Wayne a couple of weeks ago. And he knew his time was short. He knew there wasn't anything more the doctors were able to do. He was in what we call hospice. He was waiting. But he said to me, I'm ready to go. He didn't like the idea of leaving his dear wife, Jeanette, behind. They have been together, I want to say, 62 years. He didn't want to leave her behind, but he was ready to go, and he was believing what God had told him about his future in Jesus. So I don't know what the circumstances that you're facing, but Jesus here doesn't, doesn't pray to change the circumstances Jesus prays for God to make happen what God has promised through the circumstances. Jesus prays that the Son now humbled will be glorified and that, that, that as, as he's glorified, he will glorify the Father. Jesus is going to be humbled. Jesus is going to be crucified. Jesus is going to die, and in that, he's going to be glorified. We typically think of it this way. We think of Jesus is going to die, he's got to die, but then he's going to raise, and then he's going to be glorified, right? The glory comes after the suffering. What if, what if the glory is in the suffering? What if Jesus' greatest glory is as Savior rather than Lord? Just think about it for a moment. And what if he glorifies God by manifesting God in the person of the Son, that he shows us what God is like, that God is not merely judge and sovereign, Lord and King, that God is Savior, that God so loves he gives his only Son, his own person in his Son, for you and for me, these rebels who had ran from him. 
into our own way. Think of it this way. What is it that endears you more fully to God? What is it that causes you to want to walk with him, to know him, and to to do what you know to be his will instead of your own? Is it because you know that God is the Lord, that God is in charge? Or is it because you know that God so loved you that Jesus died for you? What is it that encourages your heart in the midst of distractions or despair? Is it the knowledge that God is in charge, He is Lord, or is it the assurance that He so loves you that Jesus was willing to die for you? There is where God is glorified, you see. God is glorified in the death of Jesus for us. Jesus says, says, glorify your son in this moment, in his death, so that there Jesus, in dying for us, shows us the very heart of God. This is what your God is like. He lives in John 3.16. He lives it out. He shows it to us. Jesus had no other privilege, no higher privilege than to show us what God was truly like, to manifest the name of the Father to his disciples. That name of the Father is the true nature and character of God, what what God truly is rather than our weak and false caricatures of God, our false ideas and imagining of of what God ought to be like. Jesus shows us what God is truly like, and that is, the, the capstone of that is the cross of Calvary, his suffering for us. Look how much he loves you. And that changes everything. Application from that, our willingness to give ourselves away for the sake of others, not in our death for their eternal salvation, but certainly in our sacrifice, our giving, our loss for somebody else's gain, when we would give what we have for others, when we would give them our time, when we would stay late to talk to somebody, maybe after work or after school and you want to go, you got stuff to do, but now's the time when they want to talk and you, you don't want to brush them off till tomorrow. Now's the time. This is the moment. And you would give the rest of your day for them. Because you want them to know the God that you know. And the sacrifice that you make shows something of the heart of God who was himself willing to sacrifice the best of what he had for us. Jesus glorifies the Father in completing his work of showing God in the world. Living out the Father's likeness. Giving us the Father's word. He says, I have, in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the ones that you gave me out of the world. I have manifested your name. I have showed them what you are truly like. Our greatest privilege in ministry is to show people around us what our God is truly like. That we would be transformed from glory to glory. That the image of God would more and more be worked out in our life, in our interactions with people around us. That in us they would see something of the family resemblance of God our Father of Jesus, our Savior. They would see something of him in us, in our kindness and in our consideration, even in our sacrifice for them, our giving for them, our generosity toward others, that there they would see something, even in our drawing of lines and what I will do and not do, not because this is right, that is wrong, this is what Christians are supposed to do, this is what they're not, but I don't participate in the things that that. 
that blaspheme God. I don't participate in the things that are contrary to his character. I don't cross those lines because I want to walk with him. I want to know him, and I want to show his name, his character and nature to the people around me. There's no greater honor in this life than that. It changes what this thing we call obedience is all about. God has given you and I the privilege he before then had given his son. And that was to show that the world might know God through Jesus. Now that the world might know God through those Christians who walk with him and walk in his will and live out his name. Who live in the will and purpose of God. He prays that he will be glorified in the Father's presence with the glory that he laid aside in the incarnation. Jesus' prayer to be glorified, to ascend, to be with the Father, to have the glory that he willingly laid aside for us, to have that glory restored. 1 Corinthians 15 says he's the first fruits. That as he is, we will be. That, that as Christ is risen, so all those in Christ will be made alive. That his reality, risen from the tomb, and his reality appearing before his disciples, his reality ascending to the Father, is our reality also. Because it was true, it will be true. Because God answered that prayer then, God will answer that prayer for you and I as well. So Wayne Hamilton's confidence was well-founded. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and in his presence is fullness of joy. He defines eternal life. He said, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God. Eternal life is not merely a destination. It's not that I'm going to live in heaven when I die. It's not that I'm going to live forever when I die. In fact, everybody lives forever. Some people will live with God forever. Some people will live separated from God forever. The choice in the garden made permanent. To be with the Lord forever is because we belong to him, that we are his And since we are his, and since we are the sons, where else would we be? And Jesus says, I want them with me. And that's a prayer that God's going to answer. This is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God. It's a relational, it's an experiential walking with. And there's the connection to this next prayer. Jesus prays for the disciples then. If that is their eternal life, Jesus prays that they will continue. He has been guiding them in it. He has been helping them, holding their hands and taking baby steps. But he's going away now. And he prays that they will continue to walk in the Father's will. According to the Father's word, which is how we know the Father's will, those words that Jesus himself gave them from the Father. He prays that that they will continue. And, And so our prayer would sound something like this. Borrowing from Jesus, condensing it, and losing a lot in the process, surely. Father, keep us faithfully following you together in your word. We're to not merely follow him. This is not a solo sport. This is not individualism in the American way. This is faithfully following you together. He said that they would be one together even as we are one. This is faithfully following you together, all of us of the same mind, but not any old mind, not any mind that we can all agree on, 
but that we would all be following together in the mind of Christ, as Paul says in Philippians, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. That we are walking in step with the Spirit, as it's described in, in uh, first, um, no, Galatians chapter 5. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit, as some translations. Other translations I love, they pick up a military aspect. Have you ever seen a military flight? I remember a military flight in basic training. This is brand new here. The first hour didn't get this, so this is extra. You'll stay two minutes extra for this. The, the, when I was in basic training, they taught us how to march, which was completely useless. We never did it again in the Air Force. But we learned how to march, and we were four abreast, and about 12 of us going backwards. And... You have 48 or more people all together in one big clump. Start there. And they're all going to walk that way. What does that look like? It looks like a mass. And people are bouncing this way and that way and so forth. And you're bumping into the guy in front of you because you're, you're marching close together. And yet his foot's going back when your foot's going forward. And so the, the drill sergeant calls out a cadence. And you better get it right. And you better not be bouncing. And when he says left, everybody's stepping on the left foot. When he says right, everybody's stepping on the right foot. And at least it kept us from tripping over each other, if nothing else, right? That would be good in the church, right? If we live by the Spirit, Paul says, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And there's the, where the unity comes in. That's where we'll all be one as the, the Son was one with the Father. Jesus said nothing that wasn't the father, words the Father gave him. Jesus did nothing that wasn't what the Father was doing. Jesus lived the life of the Father in humanity. And what we find very hard to believe is that's the privilege that we have been given. The life in, of Christ in our life is the life of the Father expressed in humanity, in our weak humanity, that the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, Romans 8 says, will give his life to your mortal, weak, incapable bodies. It's an amazing privilege he has given us. And this thing called eternal life. And so he prays for their protection, for their keeping, for their knowing and walking with the Father. Even as Jesus kept his disciples walking in faith, trusting the Father, he disclosed the Father to them. He showed them how to walk with the Father, not following the Pharisees, not following the, those who decided, oh, we're going to go off and live like the Romans. No, he walked with the Father this way. This is the Father's mind in the matter, not just filling squares and keeping religious rules. But what is the Father's will? Let's do that. Let's give ourselves away to that. That's what Jesus did. That's why he walked his disciples through while he was with him. He even protected them, sometimes even confronted in them the enemy's temptations and distractions. Remember when he was so harsh to Peter? He says, get thee behind me, Satan. Oh, what a harsh thing to say. But what is he doing to Peter? Satan's mindset, no, Jesus really doesn't have to die. That's, that's being whispered into Peter's thinking. And Jesus calls it out. There's all kinds of ideas. There's all kinds of perspectives. There's all kinds of views that are out there all around us that are not God's will. How then can you know? How can I know? How will we walk in the Father's will with all of this competition around about us? Jesus gave his disciples the Father's words. He says, I'm going to give you the Spirit. And the Spirit is going to help you to remember all the things that I have taught you, all the things that I have showed you. The Spirit will take of the things that are mine and He will disclose them. He'll show them to you. And just to help us all a bit, He wrote it down. 
that these things were written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that these authors were carried along by the Spirit of the living God to express to their own personalities by the Spirit's safekeeping God's word to us and for us. Protection and rightly knowing and walking with the Father, even confronting the enemy's intrusions and distractions, doing the Father's will in the Father's name, being who God called them to be, us being who God is calling us to be in the midst of this world. Notice Jesus does not pray for a change in their circumstances. They are in this world. He said, I've been with them. I've been watching them. And now, Lord, I'm going to be coming back to, Father, I'm going to come back to you, and they're going to still be in the world. Father, keep them. Protect them from the evil one. He does not pray that they would be removed out of the circumstances. They're going to have trouble. He prays that God would keep them in the midst of the circumstances. Think back. The things that you have prayed for. The things that you have earnestly prayed for. Something big going on and you spent some time on this. Sometimes we pray more when we're really threatened, right? It's kind of like men and going to the doctor, right? We don't bother going to the doctor unless we, we really feel threatened. Sometimes we don't pray much until trouble really comes. And then we begin to pray. But in those times when we pray, how do we pray? Do we pray that God would change the trouble? Don't we pray that God would change the circumstance? And that is not how Jesus prays here. I don't ask that you take them out of the world. I pray that you would keep them from the evil one. God's power is not best shown. The power that even, even took Jesus all the way to the cross of Calvary, that power is not best shown by escapism. That power is best shown by God working by his spirit in us, even giving ourselves away, even unjustly suffering, even wrongly being rejected or, or accused or maliced, spoken against by others, and yet manifesting the character of Christ toward that. There is where God's character, God's name is lived out. Keep us in the midst of it. He prays for their sanctification. He pray, he, in fact, I set myself apart, he says, so that they would be set apart for you. Jesus set himself apart into the Father's will, and that was the mechanism by which God has transformed your life and mine. Because Jesus followed the Lord's will. Does it make a difference what you do? Does it matter just for you, or does it matter, does it impact for others around you? If we are in unity together... I've got a friend who's part of a particular support group. And if it was just him and the group, the group would be of no help to him at all. But because he's with a handful of other guys, and they're walking this together, they are of great help to one another in this thing that would otherwise likely eat them alive. But they're not walking alone. And what each one of them contributes in walking together with the others matters to everybody. That's a little microcosm of what the church is supposed to be and be about. 
that we are in this together and the choices that you make and the times when you will draw a line and say no because I am going to walk with the Father. I'm going to walk in His will, not my own desire and not those temptations that are laid out before me, not the alternative perspective. I'm going to go God's way. And that matters for me, but it matters for those who come after me. It matters for those who are in my wake. It matters for those who are around me in ways that I may not realize. Jesus sanctified himself to sanctify his disciples. And you and I, following in, in his steps, we have an impact as well. The things you do matter for you. The things you do matter for others. The ways that you will devote yourself to the will of God matters for others. And how do I do that? Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. You want to know what God is like. He is not the product of your imagination. That is called an idol. God is not the product of what you think God should be like. God has revealed himself in story, in history, in poetry, in, in prophetic literature. God has shown himself. He has taught us through didactic teaching in all kinds of different ways of expression. God has shown himself so that we could know him. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. One of the most hellish attacks on believers and on all of humanity today is the attack against the notion of truth itself. Let's get right down to the core of it. Let's take a step back. Let's go back to creation. God made man in his image. In his likeness, male and female, he created them. Well, for several generations now, creation itself has been under attack. God didn't really make you. You're not special. You are not the capstone of God, the creator's work and efforts, and that he made everything, and then he made you even in his own image. You're not that special. You're just a product of happenstance and chance. And then we wonder why our youth do not value their own lives or the lives of others. And now we've, we've taken another swing at that whole creation concept of God created them male and female. He created them, and that has been, been opposed and denied today in ways that no human society has ever seen in the history of the world before. We have come up with something that is fantastic to embrace and believe, and yet is wildly believed. And that wild belief embrace of a notion that there is not male and female when all of creation screams that there is, even if it's broken and messed up and disabled and, and in the same way that our, our health is messed up and broken and doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. And yet, to deny that that is the reality, this has never been believed in human history before. It's fantastic that people would believe this, except this is in direct rebellion against God and his creation. And along with that is the, is the attack on the notion of truth itself. Is there even truth at all? And without God, there is no truth. They're consistent at least on that. That's the, those are the worldviews that are swirling all around us that we are urged to buy into or at least give place to. And the danger is, as Israel's history shows us, you cannot walk with and worship God 
by living like a Canaanite. That's the story of the book of Judges. The book of Judges is a horrible book. You should read it. No, no. It's a horrible book. You'll say, how can this be? How does God allow this? Well, then read the newspaper. And you say, okay, well, there it is. What happened is the people of God called to be different The people of Israel turned into the Canaanites. They were supposed to replace the Canaanites, and they turned into the Canaanites. That's the story of the book of Judges. You cannot walk with God and worship God by living like a Canaanite or a Philistine. And neither in the first century could the church... See, the Romans built these wonderful cities, the Decapolis cities. These were cities of Rome in Israel. As the church is born and growing, they are enamored with, they are tempted by, they are fascinated by this wonderful wealth of Roman culture. I mean, here are these hillbilly Jewish peoples coming from the hills of the Shephelah and Galilee regions, and they're, they're attracted to these cities that the Romans have built, and they gleam white with marble, and they have theaters, and they have shows, and each one of these shows has a message. The theater pr- productions have a presentation with a worldview behind it, and they have these gorgeous temples And they have bathhouses. And they have toilets. Think of it. You've been digging holes all your life. And this worldview has toilets. And you sit there and there's a hole in the rock bench. It's a rock bench. It doesn't rot. It's just, it's there. They're they're still there. Amazing. And, And there's water that runs underneath there. And whatever you drop into the hole there, it just gets carried away magically by the water running through. This is fantastic. How could you not be, be tempted to buy into that wonderful thing and thus the whole worldview behind it? And I'm not saying don't have, don't have flush toilets. Please do. And please flush them. Okay? I'm not saying we don't live in the, the, the things of our present society and world, but we don't buy into the worldview that every ad on TV is also trying to sell you as they take something from you in the process. That's what it's about. And yet Jesus prays for us. Keep us faithfully following you together in your word. Your word is truth. We'll we'll contradict the lies around us. And Jesus prays for you and I. He extends this prayer also to those who will believe in me through their word, that they may also be one just as we are. Jesus prays for a unity that empowers ministry. This is a unity that pulls us together because it's a shared unity around the will and the purpose of God. It's not a unity that we negotiate. It's not a unity that we come up with that dumbs down to the lowest common denominator so we don't have anything left, left to disagree about. It's a unity that is centered in the Father's will. That was Jesus' unity with the Father was he walked with the Father. And that's the unity that he calls us into. The mind and purpose of the Father and the Son. Knowing God in a relational fellowship and walk that they will be with me. Jesus wants you there. I talked about that already. I won't say it again. But verse 26, I want to close with this. Well, it makes sense. It's the last verse of the chapter. Verse 26, I'll read it again. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus prays that you will know that he does indeed love you, that that, his love for you, the security and his embrace of you, no matter what else life throws at you, that there you can rest secure. And you can give yourself away. 
And his love will be expressed in your life because you're not worried about guarding your life because he's got you. You've got this because he's got you. That's the way Jesus closes it here. It'd be a good point for us to, us to close on as well. Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus actually saw you 2,000 years ago when he prayed this prayer? Do you believe that 2,000 years ago, do you really believe that Jesus also prayed for you? If you believe that, because it says that, if you believe that, then do you believe that he would take a little time to pray for you today? That's how much he loves you. I have, what did it say? I have made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. I'm going to keep after them myself because they're mine and I love them and I intend to have them with me forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that Jesus prayed for us. Thank you, Father, that we can Lord, also pray that same prayer, that you would work in and through us for the sake of others, that you would use our life, Father, for the giving of your life to the people around us. Father, help us to manifest the Father's name. Help us to show people around us what our Father is like. Father, as we receive this morning's offering, would you use these gifts in ways that make you known? Lord, as Sunday school starts, as Bible studies start, as Awana starts, as your truth is taught, Father, in this truth, Lord, would you use these gifts to take these truths to, to, to children and to their parents, to those younger or those older, Father, to, to show yourself through us to the people around us that they would also have your life. We pray it in Jesus' name and all who agree said, amen. Thank you.